1 Corinthians chapter 3. In this letter, Paul is writing to the church that he founded in Corinth, a church that has gone dangerously off course in, in a relatively short period of time. They have allowed the culture to shape their views of the gospel, of the church and its leadership in particular, and of Paul himself as an apostle. We've seen how that Paul has pointed out to them that God chose contrary to what the culture would have chosen in terms of salvation and the message, Christ crucified. This is scandalous to the Jews. It is madness uh, to the Greeks. God has chosen a people who by the standards of their culture are not wise, influential, or of noble birth. Instead, they are the weak things, the lowly things, the despised things, the nothings of their society. And then Paul has pointed out to them that God has chosen an apostle who came with weakness, with much fear and trembling. Last week, we looked at how Paul begins to show them that their view of wisdom and spirituality are actually quite wrong. That they are not as mature as they might imagine. They are not as spiritual as they might imagine. You see, they had bought into what the culture had done in terms of defining spirituality. And I think that we have too. For Paul, to be a Christian is to have the spirit. And if you have the spirit, you are spiritual. Period. It's not that you have spiritual Christians and unspiritual Christians. An unspiritual Christian is an oxymoron. It's not possible. A Christian has a spirit, therefore that person is spiritual. And, but by taking the norms of the culture around them, um, the Corinthians had imagined themselves to be something that they were not. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but you know we live in a time and place when uh, the word mature... I have to be careful how I say it, is said in such a way as to almost make it humorous where people say, oh, so-and-so so mature. You know, like, actually, no, the way you say it, it doesn't sound like they're very mature. That's the Corinthians. They're going around saying, look at us, we're spiritual, we're mature. And Paul is saying, no, actually you're not because you are following the culture. Now we come to the second area in which the Corinthians have sort of misplaced. They have left biblical standards and embraced those of the culture. It has to do with the church and with the leadership of the church. We shouldn't be surprised by this because if they're off on the gospel and the message of Christ crucified, uh, then the implications of having a church, having leadership, they would be off on that as well. To correct their mistaken view, Paul uses three metaphors here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verses 5 through 9, he uses the metaphor of farming. In verses 10 through 15, uh, the metaphor of building a structure. And then in verses 16 and 17, the metaphor of the temple. Then when we come to the end in verses 18 through 23, Paul will sort of wrap up everything he has said thus far in his letter. Let's begin with verses 5 through 9. Uh, as Paul tries to correct their view of leadership and the church. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, 
Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. For neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. The Corinthian view of leadership has been mentioned twice already in in a very short period of time. In uh, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that there are quarrels where people say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And then what we looked at last week in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, that there is jealousy and quarrelings. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And Paul wants them to see that this is a totally inadequate view of the church and ministry. Because Paul asks the question, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Paul and Apollos are servants. They're not masters to whom you would say, I belong to him, I follow him. They are, in fact, servants. And you don't follow servants. Servants follow you. Servants serve you. God has used them, and this will come up in chapter 4. God has used them to be the means through whom the Corinthians came to believe the gospel. They are servants to whom they have been assigned, or each one of them has been assigned, a task. Paul did not come to Corinth because he wanted to. Uh, Apollos did not come to Corinth, uh, Corinth because he wanted to. God called them, God assigned them to go to Corinth and to do their work. And each of them had a different responsibility. Paul was the one who planted the church. He stayed there for a year and a half, and so he got them going. But it is Apollos who comes later and waters the seed, and so they, hopefully they begin to grow in their knowledge of the gospel. To understand Paul, you have to understand the metaphor of servant. It, it instructs, it informs all of um, his understanding of his relationship to God, to the gospel, and to the churches. And we will see it as we continue through this epistle. But this view comes from Jesus. This is not something that Paul sort of thought up on his own. In Mark chapter 10, one of the versions that we're given, Jesus is approached by the two brothers, uh, James and John. Micah read to us today of of the martyrdom of James. They're the sons of Zebedee. And they come to Jesus and they ask, when you come into your kingdom, that is when you sit on the throne, because that's what they're thinking, kingdom, king, throne, when you sit on your throne, could one of us sit on your left and one of us sit on your right? And Jesus says, you know, I can't, that's not for me to give. Well, the other ten got upset, I think because... They hadn't thought of it first. And so Jesus calls them together, and this is what he says. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the kingdom, it's different than it is in the culture. In the culture, if you're going to be in charge, you have to take charge. You have to, tell, you have to put people in their places. I'm in charge. You have to listen to me. 
In the kingdom, it's different. You have to be a servant. And the Son of God himself came not to be served, one would think. Jesus comes down from heaven, he would want people serving him. No. He came instead to serve. So the cross is not only the paradigm or the model for the gospel, as God's way of contradicting the way we think as human beings, it is also the model for the basis for ministry. That is, that we are to be servants. Paul and Apollos are not masters to say, I belong to Paul. No, they are servants. It is through their work that the Corinthians came to believe the gospel. Their assignments came from God himself, and the differences are from God. And I think that this is something that the Corinthians failed to understand. Paul began the work. And so, of necessity, I think his teaching was fairly limited. When Apollos came along, they had already developed a certain amount in the faith, so he's teaching them other things. And I think some of them are like, well, we like Apollos because he's teaching us new things. Paul, you know, is always talking about you know, salvation and those types of things. We like Apollos because he has taught us new things. And Paul is saying, I taught you what I was supposed to because that's what the Lord assigned me. Apollos taught you what he did because that's what the Lord assigned him. It's not something we chose to do on our own. To flesh out this idea of being a servant, Paul uses the metaphor of farming. And he presents four particular aspects. The one who planted the seed, that's Paul himself. He started the church. The one who watered, Apollos continued as a teacher there among them. And we're told this, by the way, in Acts chapter 18. On arriving in Achaia, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. The Christians are there. Apollos comes and he teaches them and they grow in their knowledge of the faith. The third aspect, the one who makes it grow. God. Because you can plant all you want and you can water all you want. It is God, the creator, who causes things to grow. And lastly, the church. They are the field. They are the place where Paul and Apollos have done their work. Paul planted, that work is finished. Apollos watered, his work is finished. But God's work is not finished. He is the one who continues to cause it to grow. And so, rather than looking from the bottom up, the way that the Corinthians are, Paul wants them to look from the top down. God is the one who called Paul and Apollos, who sent them, who assigned them their task, Paul did his work, Apollos did his work, but God is the one who brought the results. The Corinthians need to understand this. Paul does mention something in passing here that I just want to mention in passing as well, and that is the idea of reward. I don't know if you caught that uh, in verse number 8. Uh, each will be rewarded according to his own labor. The reason I just want to mention in passing, and I think the reason that Paul does as well, is not to focus on, ooh, what, what kind of reward will Paul get? Will it be bigger than Apollos's? Will it be a different kind? No, his point is this. They're a servant. They get paid. Okay? In other words, they work under somebody else. They have a boss. The boss is the one who gives them the reward. And the boss is the one who determines their pay. And so this, I think, should help clarify, at least 
for the Corinthians. Uh, don't say I belong to Apollos. Apollos is a servant whose assignment, whose pay, whose reward is determined by somebody else. Why, why would you follow Apollos? You should, in fact, follow God. Verse 9 ties up this first analogy here, and that is that Paul and Apollos work together in common cause. They are fellow workers. They belong to God. The Corinthians don't belong to Paul and Apollos. They belong to God as well. And I like the way that Paul puts it here. For we are God's fellow workers. We belong to God. You are God's field. You are God's building. So this idea that I belong to Paul or Apollos is is ludicrous. We all, in fact, belong to God. In verses 10 through 15, Paul shifts metaphors. And it actually begins at the end of verse number 9. When he says, you are God's building, this opens the door for what we find now in verses 10 through 15. Follow along, if you would, as I read this. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. But if what he, if what he is built, or what he builds, I'm sorry, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, as with some of the passages we've looked at thus far in 1 Corinthians, this one is one that has been, I think, greatly misused and misunderstood. And, and there are different, different views of what this passage means. Some think that it refers to the individual, individual piety. Some see it as a debate over whether or not you can lose your salvation. Um, Interestingly enough, in the Roman Catholic tradition, this is the only passage in the Bible that they see as referring to purgatory. And so the flames there they see as the flames of purgatory. But all of these miss the point. What what is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about individuals? No, he's talking about the church, the building. And so his focus is not on individual piety or an individual salvation but rather on building the church, God's building the church. In verse number 10, we have three of the four things carried over from the previous passage. God, he is the owner. The church, now not the field, is the building. And Paul is not now the one who waters, not the one who plants, but the one who laid the foundation. Apollos is not mentioned here. And, And I think that's important Because Paul's not talking about Apollos here. He's talking to the Corinthian Christians themselves. This is how Paul sees it. He came into town. He preached the gospel. People were converted. He laid the foundation. And what is the foundation? There can be no other foundation for the church. It has to be Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was able to lay this foundation because of the grace that God had given him. That is to say, it wasn't done in his own strength. And if you remember what we studied thus far, uh, apparently there was real danger in Corinth that Jesus actually 
had to come to Paul in a vision and tell him, don't be afraid. So, Paul was not able to do this in his own strength. The grace that God gave him, he laid the foundation. But he did have expertise as an expert builder. It's an interesting play on words here in Greek. It is as a wise craftsman. And remember, wisdom is is one of the issues here. Yes, it is the grace of God that enables him to do this. But Paul also has training. He has skill. And therefore, he has laid the foundation. Now, once the foundation is laid, then you can begin to build on it. Others will build on it. I think not Apollos, but the people in Corinth themselves. But you have to be careful how you build. The foundation is already there. It is a foundation that will not pass away. It is Jesus Christ. But be careful how you build on it. Now, if you want to start a new religion, that's fine. Go start a new religion. But don't start, don't build it on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That foundation, you know, be careful how you build on that. That is the true foundation. If you want something else, get something else. But the Corinthians, interestingly enough, have not left the Christian faith. They've tweaked it. So that now you have this wonderful foundation and you have this monstrosity of a building that is emerging because of the Corinthians and the way they view the gospel. In verse 12, Paul mentions six building materials. Gold, silver, uh, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Let me just give you some thoughts about these before we move on. I don't think Paul means anything by the use of these, uh, these building materials. I don't think he's creating a hierarchy of gold is the best and straw is the worst. Um, what he's talking about are things that survive and things that do not. Things that will endure and things that will not. I think he's doing something else as well. He's talking about the materials that were used in the Old Testament temple. Gold and silver and the costly stones. But in verse 10, he says, we should be careful how we build. And now we find out, find out why. Because there is a day of judgment that is coming. And the fire, the light and the fire will reveal what type of work that it is. See, the Corinthians think that they're doing a great job. Paul came in and he started, Apollos did better than Paul, but now we're on our own and we're building this, this church of Corinth in which we have people who belong to Apollos and Paul and Cephas and Christ. Great diversity. And Paul is saying, well, wait a minute. One day, on that day, the light of day will reveal that what you've built is actually something that is not right, not proper. The day will bring it to light. The fire will test it. It will be revealed by fire. Some survive the fire. Others will not. Those that survive will be rewarded. Those that are burned up will not be lost. But they will still be saved. I find it fascinating that Paul doesn't spell out what the reward is, what the loss is. 
And I think that's probably pretty good. I have a, a missionary friend uh, who's had health problems. And uh, I remember his wife telling me that whenever he goes to the doctor, the doctor says, okay, this is what you need to have done. This is either the medicine you need to take or the surgical procedure you need. This is what you need to have done. And always he asks the same question. What will happen if I don't? What will happen if I don't do that? I think it's good that Paul doesn't tell us what the reward of the loss is, because we might begin to think, well, well, the loss I can handle, that's not too bad, or the reward's not that great. Uh, Paul doesn't spell it out. He simply says that when Christ returns, the work you have done in building up Christ's church will be revealed. Paul thus writes, I think, with a warning, but there's also hope. It is possible, unfortunately, to build a church following any conceivable human system based on human wisdom. It's possible to build a huge church following the systems of the world. At the judgment, it will be shown for what it is. And one will lose. Or one will survive. The good news is, you've got a great foundation. You have a great foundation. It's Jesus Christ. Don't worry about the foundation. That's fine. Now you need to build and do it accordingly. Now we come to verses 16 and 17, the third metaphor here. Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Paul now subtly shifts from the issue of leadership, building the church, to now the nature of the church itself. He moves from being a building to being a very specific kind of building, the temple of God. And I think that Paul does this for, for a number of reasons, but he's trying to point out that the church is incredibly important. He starts out in verse 16, don't you know? This is an expression he uses 11 times in his writings, 10 times here in 1 Corinthians. See, the Corinthians thought they knew everything. Okay, So when Paul says, don't you know, it's like, hey, you guys, you should know this. You who know everything, you should know this. Don't you know this very important fact? You are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. Don't you know that? You should know that. The word that Paul uses speaks of the sanctuary itself, not the temple grounds, but the sanctuary itself, where it is said that the deity lived. And he tells them, you are the place where God lives. You are God's temple. Paul is writing to a people who live in a city Filled with temples. Corinth was filled with temples. He tells them, you are God's temple. See, the early church did not have church buildings. They didn't have cathedrals. They had what God gave them. People. And the people are the temple of God. The alternative, you know, the alternative to Corinth's religious system its cultural system, its vices and everything, is the temple of God. 
And the temple of God is God's people. And when you begin to boast about God's temple, when you begin to boast about wisdom and divisions, then you're in fact destroying God's temple. And that's not a small thing, because we see in verse number 17, God will destroy such a person. Doesn't that sound a bit severe? Well, God's temple is sacred. It's set apart. It's important to him. You know, in Ephesians 5, this is the passage I think we usually think of, but the church. Is the church important? If I were to ask you, tell me one passage that says the church is important. We'd probably all go through Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for the church. See, the church is important. Well, this should be a passage that we should include on our list. The church is important, and if you do anything to destroy the church of God, God will destroy you. His church is important. Now we come to the conclusion of the matter, here in verses 18 through 23. Paul returns to the issue of wisdom, this, this, this idea that has plagued the Corinthian church. Those who are embracing it. Those who want to be mainstream, to be accepted by the culture. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 18 through 23. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life or death, the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. I think Paul goes in a different direction than we might have expected. If you accept the standards of the world, if you want to be wise, considered wise by the world, then you're accepting their standards. And you're really self-deceived. And if you try to build the church of God using the standards of this world, you will be destroyed because you're destroying the church of God. You'll be destroyed because the wisdom of this age will be destroyed as well. If you accept the standards of this world, then understand that we will be seen as foolish. And Paul states something directly that he's only hinted at in chapter 1. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. And how do we know that? Well, as Paul is wont to do, he quotes the Old Testament. Two passages, Job, and by the way, just parenthetically, this is one of only two quotations from Job in the New Testament. That... God catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Those people who think they're so smart, they build a trap, they dig a hole, and they fall into their own trap, into the, own, the hole that they've dug. And then he quotes from Psalm 94. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are futile. Those who think they're wise are self-deluded and fall into their own traps. And if this is the case, and it is, then stop this. Cut it out. Stop boasting about men. That's what the world does. 
We're not to be like the world. See, they started out by saying, I am of Paul. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And now Paul has changed this. In verse number 9, you are of God. And then all things are yours. This last part of this passage I, I find really fascinating. In verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, you know, all these things are yours. And, and that I think I can understand. Paul is a servant, he belongs to you. Apollos is a servant, he belongs to you. Cephas, Peter himself, is a servant, he belongs to you. Not you belong to them. Because these men are servants after all. But then Paul goes on to say, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. What can he mean by this? Well, for Paul, the resurrection is pivotal. It changes human history. Christ being put to death and being resurrected, the world has changed. The world is a different place. Now, Christ has authority. You know the passage in Matthew 28. After the resurrection, Jesus said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Apparently, this is something he did not have prior to the resurrection. That's why Satan could tempt him and say, If you bow down, I will give you all of this. Well, by virtue of the resurrection, this all belongs to Christ. He had to die and be resurrected to do that. But that's what he did. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, gave a series of lectures at the beginning of the 20th century at Princeton, known as the Stone Lectures. And one statement he made is, is famous. He said, there is not one inch in life over which Christ does not say, mine. That is, it all belongs to Christ. But how is this expressed? How is this demonstrated? How is this exhibited? Well, think a minute in terms of the creation, fall, redemption paradigm we've talked about in the past. In creation, this is how God, think, God wanted things to be. This is how they should be. Fall, this is how things have been transformed, twisted, ruined by sin. Redemption is how these things are to be recovered. It's how God created them. They were messed up by the fall. Now they are to be recovered. They are to be redeemed. The rule of Christ is to be expressed here in redemption. But how is that demonstrated? In our lives. When it comes to the arts, and we have a number of people who are in the arts here, that which is twisted by sin, and, and pornography is just perhaps the worst of it, is now to be recovered. So that Christ can say, yes, the arts, they belong to me. Family life. You know, non-Christians get married too. But a Christian marriage is to be something where the rule of Christ is demonstrated, where Christ can say, yes, marriage belongs to me. That was there in the garden, and now it's being redeemed through my people. Your jobs, your neighborhoods, every aspect is a place in which we are to be working every day to recover it for Christ. So that your job, your specific job, Jesus Christ can say, that's mine. Because there's my child, there's my servant, and they're recovering that for me.
so that Christ rules over all and we belong to Christ and so Paul says all things are yours. The rule of Christ is everywhere. It is to be demonstrated through your lives, everyday life, as we recover that which has been tainted and ruined by sin. So Paul says, what's, what's this business about I follow Paul or I follow Apollos? They belong to you. In fact, all things belong to you because you belong to Christ and he belongs to God. See, the Corinthians thought that they had really become very broad-minded. And Paul is saying, you people, you're so narrow-minded, you're only looking at the small aspect of the leadership of the church. You're only looking at these men who are servants. Think of Christ. Think of God the Father. Think of Christ's rule. It all belongs to him, and you belong to him, and he belongs to God. You poor Corinthians. You've been sucked up by the culture. You've you've bought into the culture and redefined what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a part of the church. I think we all have our own daydreams, our own wistful thoughts to maybe see our picture on the cover of Time magazine or Newsweek or to be acknowledged publicly for some great deed. For people to say, yes, this is a wonderful person. That's the way the world thinks. Paul would say, that's so small. And by the way, you know, if you did get your picture on the cover of Time magazine, do you realize that the vast majority of people on this planet would never see it? Because the vast majority of people don't get Time magazine? So what? You're happy that Several million people know who you are. Paul's like, don't waste your time. All things are yours. You are part of the reclamation process of redeeming the world back to Christ. Of redeeming the culture. So that you sit next to someone who is not a Christian, you do the same job, but you are not simply doing your job, you're redeeming that, that job for Jesus Christ. Married couples live side by side. One is Christian, the other is not. The one couple is redeeming marriage for the person of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. It's amazing. And so how pathetic to to somehow reduce the gospel to say, well, uh, I belong to Paul. I I belong to Apollos. But the servants? That's who you belong to? Don't you know they belong to you? In fact, all things are yours. But you know what? When you become embarrassed by the gospel, the idea of Christ being crucified, once you give that up, it's a domino effect. And all these other things will go by the wayside. The Lord willing, next week we will look at chapter 4 as Paul will try to say, listen, The apostles are important. We are servants, but we are important. The Lord willing, we'll see this next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are human. We breathe the same air as those around us. Sometimes we have the same ambitions and goals, which are so small, so narrow, so petty. 
we should instead realize that as your people, we are part of the redemption process, reclamation. We're to be conquering the culture for you, step by step. Sadly, we end up going over to the other side, wanting to be part of the culture, wanting to be mainstream, instead of obeying you. I pray that in the days to come we would think about these things and meditate on them and have an understanding of our place in your plan. We are your temple. A temple that is not to be built following the norms of what human beings say, but by following your gospel, following the principle of servanthood. This is so different, so radical compared to what we hear around us, compared to what we feel in our hearts. May your spirit do his work in our hearts in these coming days. I thank you for the time we could spend together. This time in worship. I ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand, please, as we sing the doxology together. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.